You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Welcome back, my friends. Uh, I guess welcome back to me and understanding disordered eating because you guys have been around. We're starting a whole new round of podcast episodes special for 2023. I'm so excited for what we have in store. And I figured why not start this year off with a bang with Dr. Judith Brisman. If you don't know who she is, her name probably rings a bell. She's an absolute legend in the world of treating eating disorders. So on this episode 73, we talk about food and desire, our wants, our needs, and our relationship to our wants and our needs, which ends up being so symbolic in our relationship with food. We talk about family work and how desires and getting needs met are so, so complicated with family dynamics. And then, of course, as always, we talk about practicals. What do you do with all of this information to actually change your life for the better? So a bit about Judith. She is a psychologist, an author, and an eating disorder treatment specialist. I would call her a pioneer, really, in this field of eating disorders. She's been in the field for decades, over 30 years. She opened the first center in the U.S. dedicated to the treatment of bulimia that was renamed Eating Disordered Resource Center, and she was the director for over 35 years. She is the co-author of Surviving an Eating Disorder, Strategies for Family and Friends, which is, by the way, now in its fourth edition. I can put a link to that in the show notes. She's also on the editorial board of Eating Disorders, the Journal of Treatment and Prevention, and the associate editor for the journal Contemporary Psychoanalysis. So you know me, marrying eating disorder treatment and psychoanalysis together. This is your girl. She's also teaching faculty at the William Allenson White Institute in New York City, one of those really big analytic institutes, you guys, and has published and lectured extensively regarding the interpersonal treatment of eating disorders. So now for our first episode back, come and join me. All right, Judith, I am so excited for this. We finally hit record. We've been talking about this forever. Thank you so much for joining. And I'm very excited to have you. Maybe before we start, can you share a little bit about who you are? Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for having me on. I've been listening to the podcast that I'm just really glad that you're introducing the psychological aspects of eating disorders, that we're really focusing on that. And I've been in the field for a long time. I opened the first center in the country for bulimia and am known for one of the people that that felt like you couldn't just work with the behaviors, but I'm trained as a psychoanalyst. And that you could have an analytic or psychodynamic perspective of why the behavior was there at the same time working directly with the behavior. So I'm known for interweaving behavioral behavioral work with a psychological understanding of what's happening. And I also wrote the first book with my colleagues for family and friends. Um, I've been really interested in families for a long time. 
The book is Surviving an Eating Disorder, Strategies for Family and Friends. And it came out in its fourth edition last June, June. Oh, uh, wow. Congrats 2021. on that. I'll link to Thanks. all of that in the show notes in case people want to find it quickly. Okay. Uh, so I've been interested in families and eating disorders for quite some time and, and hope that we can have a dialogue about the role of the family when, when anyone is um, struggling with an eating disorder. Yeah. Well, maybe let's take a couple of steps back to sort of lay a bit of groundwork before we jump into the families, because that's sort of when things get extra complicated. Yes. The way that I conceptualize eating disorders, I know this is pretty similar for you, and obviously it's super complex and we can't reduce it to one idea. But if we think about the idea of managing food as a way of managing emotions, how does that work? Why does it work? What Can you say more about that? Well, I think we all have ways of trying to cope with emotions. I mean, I think it's part of being human. And, you know, some some of the things we do might be to distract ourselves, to binge watch something. uh, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But sometimes feelings get so overwhelming at times that people don't have any other way to figure out how to deal with them. And so... People develop strategies, coping mechanisms that can include disordered eating so that someone might um, end up turning to any kind of substance. I mean, we all know that you can use alcohol and drugs to manage feelings. But if a feeling feels too overwhelming, it's possible either to turn to food to eat, to distract yourself, to numb yourself. Or alternately, I always think about um, part of feelings is is wanting. It's our lives are all about wanting what, we, what we're wanting in relationships, what we're wanting for ourselves. And if that wanting gets too intense, a, another coping way of dealing with it is is to not want at all. And that's when we see this can be played out with food. I have a, a really great example of someone who's who's quite older. She's in her sixties and has fallen in love for the first time. She's really kept her life very secluded. She was a professional, very successful, and she got terrified. She was in in a normal-sized body, fell in love, and lost 20 pounds in two months and got to a weight that was was pretty unhealthy. And um, she's savvy enough, psychologically savvy enough, to know that she started to want to be with this person so much and it just felt so out of control that she to calm herself down, she just like tightened up, tightened up those feelings and stopped eating. She came into treatment and luckily she was not someone who she's someone who did incredibly well. I mean, in recognizing that this was about control, she mm-hmm. was able to on her own, which is very unusual to start to gain the weight yeah. back again. <laughs> yeah. That's usually not the course. But um food not eating, binging can be used in all sorts of ways to to manage feelings. Yeah, no, I love that you brought this example because it sort of highlights exactly why perhaps we use food. So, you know, it's so easy to say, oh, we use a substance or whatever it is to manage feelings and just sort of end the conversation there. But then there's, you know, especially when I was trying to understand this years ago, I was like, okay, so, so why? What's the bridge here? And if we think about physical hunger, uh, fullness, satiety, if you will, as a metaphor for desire, our our needs and wants, then we can sort of, on a a physical level, 
shut it off, open it up, try to get them met or completely disavow. And to me, that sort of like clarifies things in a way of, in your example, she really wanted to spend so much time with this person or needed this person, Mm -hmm. which is totally normal, but perhaps terrifying. And then in order to sort of manage that fear to sort of um, almost break it off. And so that manifested, it sounds like in a physical hunger sort of way, I'm not hungry, I'm not going to eat. And it's sort of like really intertwines while this sort of desire needs, emotional needs and uh, physical needs. They sort of get mixed up. Exactly. It's funny. Sometimes I like to think about how one's relation, if, if food were a person, what's your mm. relationship with that person? And, you know, uh, do you have a relationship where you push them away? You don't want them. You, you're terrified of them and you're restricting. Do you have a relationship where you take them in and then you get afraid of losing yourself? And so then you push them out, um, which is the kind of things that get played out with food. So for example, with bulimia, I mean, someone wanting something so much and then, and then fearing that the wanting is going to hurt them, that they're going to gain weight. And so mm-hmm. this, the, the, the purging becomes not just a way of losing weight, but a way of getting back in control. And I've seen this kind of situation a lot in sometimes in mother daughter relationships where I had uh, a patient years ago who she, she was actually somewhat restrictive in, in the sense that she would call it eating prison food. Like she knew what she was having for breakfast, lunch, dinner, mm. every single day <laughs> to keep her weight under, you know, the same. Um, but every once in a while she would just completely binge and, um, and then throw up. And after some time of working in therapy, we were talking about the, what does she think about the moment she goes to binging? If she weren't thinking about the food, what would she be thinking about? It took her a while. And then she came into session one day and she said, Judith, I was lying in bed and I was th- so pissed off at my mother. I was just so angry. And then the next thing I realized is I was walking to the kitchen and I was going to get food. And she said, it was like a moment of revelation. Like, oh, that's it. You know, if I could, if I could eat, then I don't have to think about my mother. And then I could sort of have all the feelings and then get rid of the feelings. And that was the first step in her recovery of, of making a decision. That moment, not, not going to the food and saying, wait, I'm mad at my mother. This isn't going to help anything about that. So just to clarify, in that example, there was a lot of, say, anger and potentially other emotions. And what was the eating doing? Was it just sort of allowing it to be there and then the purge was to get rid of it? Or what's your understanding of the actual, quote, binge and how it... Yeah. 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 No, it's a good it's a good question. I think that her emotions got too overwhelming about her. She felt helpless about what to do with the anger towards her mother. And so I think that the food had become a learned way of blocking out feelings and sort of satisfying herself. Uh, But then, you know, given her concern about being hurt by the, you know, what she's taking in and allowing herself to want things, then her fear of gaining weight, then she'd throw up. Um, but I think that the, you know, it's interesting. I think it's different for each person, but, and I think that, and I think that's the question to ask each person who's struggling with turning to food, let's say, because 
most of my patients will say it just happens, you know, mm-hmm. it's like I'm not thinking anything. And if you pay really close attention to stray thoughts or to who you are inside before you go to eat, and I'm talking about eating in a way that that's just to soothe yourself. I'm not talking about for nutrition or play or, or hunger. Those moments, you can begin to understand a little bit about yourself. Like I had a patient who constantly would go to the refrigerator, was very concerned about eating at times that she wasn't hungry, felt very uncomfortable with the way she was eating. But she said, but it just happens. And so as we talked uh, over time, she said, well, you know, when I realized that I have a part of me that I keep in a corner all the time, it's Genghis Khan. And I'm always trying to do the right thing. And I think what happens when I go to the refrigerator is I let Genghis Khan come out and ravage everything. And that part of me that's wild and angry, and I can do whatever I want for a few minutes. And so for her, the binging represented letting out an aspect of herself that normally is contained, dissociated, put to the side. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see that a lot in terms of, I know Heather Ferguson was here talking about dissociation. And I think, I think that how one uses food is such an opportunity to learn about who we are and, and parts of ourselves that might be shut off from, from what we can recognize. So when we talk about desire, it's not just, I need some soothing or I need a person's support. It's also, what do I want? Like, what is my innermost desire for, I don't know, just what do I feel like doing? What's my passion? What excites me? And if that's been put, a, if there's a lid that's on it, yeah. um, you know, based on past experience, et cetera, then that oh. doesn't get to come out. But perhaps in a, in a binge, it could, because that's not real. That's just a metaphor for what's going on. It, it makes me think about Phil Bromberg's work, uh, many other people's work about different parts of ourself, self, mm-hmm. um, self uh, like different multiple parts of ourselves. And I think we all have different parts. Like right now I'm in my professional self. I'm not the self I am when I'm ready to kill my kids or or something. Um, That's a different part of me. I can't relate. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. No one can relate to that moment. Um, uh, And I, 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 I'm crazy about my kids, but I'm, I'm thinking, I was trying to think of a part of me that's very different. And I think what happens is that when you say the way of getting to know yourself, like getting, sometimes we have behaviors that represent something about ourselves that we don't even know. And that may be a self state that has been shut out. Um, so when you're talking about what do you like or what do you want, the wanting can be from a place that you don't even know exists. Like a good example is I have a patient who came in years ago and she had been, she'd been bulimic every single day from age 13 to I think 26 when she came in to see me. So we're talking about someone who half her life, she was throwing up every day and she was pretty amazing. She probably should have been in a rehab, but she was able to do outpatient work. She had the help of Prozac that actually helped her. But when she first came into treatment, she said, I have a pretty good life. She said, I just have this thing. I just want to get rid of it. And if I get rid of it, I think everything's going to be okay. And she was able to really, she worked with a nutritionist. She she did really hard work and she was able to, 
uh, slowly abate the bulimia. And at, and as as that happened, it, it became clear to her that she had come from a family where there was a lot of trauma in her parents' family. And the parents had tried to put together a really good uh, family so that their kids wouldn't experience the trauma that parents had grown up with. And so in this family, the message was that, you know, if something was bothering you, fix it. And so the the important part about this family was that they were really well-intentioned and, but there wasn't any room for really complicated feelings. And there certainly wasn't any room for anger. So interesting. It was a family that the daughter reported they'd never got angry. But as she stopped the bulimia, it became clear that her role was to pay attention to her parents, make sure that they didn't get upset and that they didn't get hurt because they had come from so much hurt in their own lives. And so we had to work very specifically on her places where she differed from her parents, if she dressed differently than they wanted, if she had a boyfriend they didn't want. Um, mm-hmm. And year, only years later, was she able to say something else? She, she, she found herself in a work situation where people um, had treated her poorly. And she, she said, um, I was so nice to them. She, and she said, you know, but she reported when she was talking about it, she was really angry. And she said, I said, well, what happened to the anger? Why weren't you angry at them? And it was like this light bulb went off in her and she said, oh, I think that's what I was trying to get rid of all my life, not the bulimia, the anger. And so the work now is how she can go back to her coworkers and be angry, have a voice. Um, but But it was a part of her that she didn't even realize existed. It, through all our work, that that there was a part of her that wanted to be angry, that needed to be angry, um, that was completely shut off. Yeah, which I think also sort of highlights the the it's not necessarily the complexity or the complicated nature of this, but that it if for every individual, almost the purpose of the eating disorder is that we aren't aware of what's going on. So we're having this conversation. It's theoretical. It's it's helpful. But it's also not going to be, you know, even if someone hands someone a formulation of their life, this is the reason why all this happens. It's the revelations that need to come from an internal place of, oh my gosh, this feels true for me. And uncovering that is going to be a really powerful part of the process because, like I said, it's the point is that the person isn't aware. That's the whole safety in it. So just, you know, when someone thinks about, oh, this sounds so simple, not exactly. <laughs> no, in fact, in fact, you're hitting on something really important. Uh, I, I think when people come into treatment and they're saying, I, I, I'll speak about binging or, or bulimia because anorexics usually don't come in by themselves. They usually are forced <laughs> to come in by their parents yeah. or spouse. Or, but someone's coming in and saying that they want to get rid of the bulimia or the binging we as I as a therapist, I'm talking to their same part. This is the mm-hmm. rational part. The question is, how do I get to know? How do I get to experience the part of them that's standing in front of the refrigerator? Mm-hmm. And that's where I like to really work very specifically with talking to them about when that happens. I was talking about in terms of treatment that what happens is when I'm talking to someone in the room, they're telling me they want to get rid of the bulimia or they want to get rid of the binging. I'm talking to a very sane part of them. 
But how do I get to know the part of them that is standing in front of the refrigerator? And that's where I'll really want to go in in a very detailed way to say, let's talk about a moment you do it, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you, I, I ask people to come up with five things they'd be willing to do instead of going into the refrigerator. It's a way of getting to know themselves. It's a way of trying to stop the behavior. But most importantly, it's a way of figuring out what's happening between the two of us. Because I'll literally make a contract with someone and say, okay, figure out maybe Tuesday night. Instead of instead of going and binging, you're going to think about five things you can do instead. Soothing yourself, calling a friend, writing down your feelings, and not go to the refrigerator. If you do go to the refrigerator, that's okay. Because really what we're trying to do is I want to get to know the part of you that goes to the refrigerator. And so I want to be there in the kitchen with you or there in the bathroom with you. So you tell me what actually happens that even though we have this agreement, there's a part of you that, that broke it and, and, and needed to binge or needed to, to purge. Um, and it becomes a way of bringing that part of the person into the room so I can better know who they are. So in some cases it may mean, um, you know, you know, I, I might say, when did you decide you know, that, that that contract wasn't good. Maybe it was when you were sitting with me in the room, but you were pleasing me and you weren't able to tell me what you really wanted. That becomes really important. Like, why couldn't you tell me that that was a stupid idea, that that was not going to work mm -hmm. for you? Um, and so, so I feel like to try to get to know that part of the person is really, it, it, you can't just, as you're saying, you can't just talk about it in a general theoretical way. Um, you really need to get in there as best you can with the um, person who's struggling. That's just an interesting take on the list five things that you can do because normally it's, you know, the, well, this is a generalization where we come at list some distractions or at least pushing off where you can do before a binge and call a friend or take a bath or take a walk. Um, and I think every single time, I mean, this is if somebody is oh. able to have this reaction, in front of me, but every single time it's like, well, that's a ridiculous idea. Like that's not going to work. Do you, have you ever binged in your life? Like that doesn't actually work. But exactly. I think what you're saying is it's not the coming up with the five things. It's what's the reaction and exactly take me through that. Like what feels so ridiculous about that? And that is the information that we're looking for. So I, I love that take. <laughs> exactly. Like if I ask someone, how, you know, how do you soothe it yourself? I mean, many people don't have another way of soothing themselves. And if I say, take a bath, they're going to say, Judith, then I have to look at my body. Or mm. if I say, well, is there anyone you could call? You don't have to tell them that you want to binge. And, and they might not have anybody that they could call when they're hurting. That becomes a whole conversation in and of itself. Do yeah. they know what they're feeling? I mean, it, it's so interesting. I was uh, talking to an 18-year-old patient of mine. We were talking about feelings. And she said, uh, that, you know, in Sanskrit, there's, oh, she, I know what she, she was saying that she loved a girl, but she, that was a different kind of love than she had for her grandmother or a different kind of love for somebody else. And she said, why do we only have one word for love? And it got us in a conversation wow. that in Sanskrit, I think there's like 92 words for love, like love of a dog, love of peace, love of the world, romantic love. And it got us into a talk about how 
deprived we are of language inside of our feelings. Mm -hmm. So if I say to someone, well, how are you feeling? Someone might not even have the word for what they're feeling. Like I like to dress and I, I like clothes, but I don't know nothing about fabrics. So if you ask me what fabric I had on, I don't know that I would have the word for it. And I think we need to understand that sometimes people don't have the words for what's happening internally. And so if I say, I'll write down your feelings, they're not going to, they're not going to know. So we might need to start with just drawing something. Yeah. That's a really good point. Because even if, even if we were talking about like, okay, let's say you were in touch with what your needs were. How do you conceptualize it? How do you put words to it? How do you communicate with that, that with somebody else? Um, Which is, you know, obviously another part of the conversation. And I think that the conversation with Tom Woldridge was very focused on that. I can link to that as well, just in case people want to know a little bit more about that. Because I think that once you identify one part of the work, then another one sort of gets highlighted. So here is, okay, so let's create some more words for this. Because without the words, then we almost have nothing, um, especially as, as verbal beings. And and that's a good segue into what happens with families, mm-hmm. because in families, you know, first of all, I want to say it, it is really unclear how eating disorders develop. We believe that some of it's physiological, that we have a genetic link to anorexia. We're pretty sure about that. Probably genetic links to certain cravings. Mm-hmm. We also know that we're in a terrible culture that focuses on our body and social media. We know the culture plays a part. And we know that that family history can play a part like that. But I really want to say that most families are so well-intentioned that they do the, that they do harm when they're trying to do their best. So Mm -hmm. like the family that really did not want their kids to go through the trauma they did, um, had unwittingly shut down the, the realm of feelings in the family. Um, but I think what happens when someone develops an eating disorder Really interesting things happen in the family. First of all, the family sort of goes into crisis. Mm-hmm. But secondly, when we're talking about the different parts of ourselves, it's very easy for family members to just get narrowed into a certain part of themselves. So thinking of an example from Sal Mnuchin from years ago, he was one mm-hmm. of the first family therapists who did work with eating disorders. And Oh, did he do work with eating disorders? Oh my God, there's a great example of the hot dog tape where he... Yes, I have he, to get my hands on this. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, he was one of the first researchers who said, listen, I think that this is that there's a problem in the families and that's why kids develop eating disorders. Either there's a triangulation, the kids pulled in, or there's a lack of boundaries, or there's a lack of communication. And so he, he has this famous video where... He had a, a, a whole plate, table full of food and he had the anorexic daughter and the mother and father come in. And he said to the mom, like I said, we're talking for a while. And he said to the mom, okay, listen, I want to see, you know, I want you to help your daughter eat. And the, the mom starts to cajole. And then the daughter's like this with arms crossed and not <laughs> eating. And then the mom starts to cry. And, and then, and, and of course the kid doesn't eat. And then the father, but Mnuchin says to the father, okay, you try. And as symbolically phallic as this is, the dad takes a hot dog and tries to push the hot dog in the kid's face. And of course, she, not funny. she doesn't eat funny. even, I know, and she doesn't eat. 
And so this is all being videoed. So then Mnuchin takes the parents to his side and is talking to them privately. And apparently, whether this is a myth or really happened, apparently what happens is that the kid then disentangled from the parents goes to the table and starts to pick and starts to eat. Really? Yeah. And Mnuchin did a lot of research indicating that if you disentangled the parents from the, the control battle with the kid and allowed the kid more autonomy that the eating disorder would be resolved. Um, his work was researched, it was validated, and then it was questioned because it was his own researchers who were validating the um, mm. results. Um, so it's questionable, but he led the way. He led the way actually to influence our first book because the first writing of surviving eating disorder was very early on. It was in the 80s. And we, too, were ascribing to let's get the parents out of the control battle with the food. And there should be consequences if, if, if you know, there's food um, taken from the refrigerator that needs to, it needs to be re- replaced. Or if bathrooms are left messy, kids need, needed to clean the bathroom. And we focused a lot on changing communication and, and, and focusing on boundaries. But... The message was really problematic because over time, what we were realizing is even if we pulled the parents out of the dynamic, the kids didn't necessarily eat. They were anorexic or the kids didn't necessarily stop um, binging or purging. And um, after we wrote that book, there were Maudsley, the Maudsley researchers in London got started to take a look at saying, wait, we're pulling the parents out of this picture. The parents are the ones in the trenches. They know more Mm -hmm. than we do. And so the field took a total turn and the focus became on parents, particularly with anorexic kids, setting limits and refeeding their kids and and sitting at tables and and saying that they were going to sit there as long as they could, but that they had the authority to really help the kids eat. Um, I'm really simplifying family-based treatment. Um, if people <laughs> want to look at it, it's called the Maudsley Approach or Family-Based Treatment. And it took a really it, an important turn um, in the field in that it got the parents back in the picture. It, we totally changed the, the point of our books. but the, the um, And the focus of our books now is how the parents can be there in the most effective way. The problem with family-based treatment is that for a lot of families, it just doesn't work. Logistically, they don't have the time to be sitting with their kid. Or as I've, I've had families come to me and say, Judith, I did everything. We did everything right. And my kid still isn't eating. And the family-based researchers also made a point of saying, we don't blame the families, which was great. But the mothers would come to me and say, do you know how blamed I feel that I couldn't mm-hmm. even get my kid to eat? And these were kids that needed residential treatment. So just to come full circle, we come in with an approach that we feel like, look, first things first, if if parents have a way to get their kids to eat, absolutely, that is what's most helpful. But often parents get stuck. And so I'll talk about that in a minute. But So what we do is we like the parents to have the authority to know that there will be consequences, for example, with someone who's anorexic, struggling with anorexia. That if they're working with a team who says what weight needs to be gained, that there are consequences if the if the kid is not able to 
complete her meals, if she's not able or they're not able to gain weight, the consequences might be that team sports are stopped or, uh, you know, a trip abroad is stopped where the, the person's going to be on their own or ultimately whether a higher level of care is needed. But what we find that gets really tricky in families when parents are trying to or significant others are trying to get their son or daughter to eat let's say, or to stop a certain behavior, is you need to look at who the parents become and, and who they're seeing their, do- their, their child as. So for example, I'm thinking of a family where there was a teenage daughter who was anorexic and was you know, gaining weight and losing weight, gaining weight and losing weight. And the parents were so good natured. They were they were really lovely people. I liked them a lot. They were smart. They were sophisticated. But when they got in the face of this kid who was so stuck in the disorder, and it would look like she was being so stubborn, the father would start to see his own mother, who was a brutal, critical, nasty woman, and he. So the part of him that grew up with that mother would suddenly who would become aggressive, he would become aggressive, he would become angry, and that's whom he would be with his daughter. Mm. The mom grew up with an alcoholic father, and she was very scared of him. So when, when, she, when she was witnessing the daughter's stubbornness, she suddenly felt the helplessness that she felt in, in the face of her father, and she would just back down. So what we try to do is we try to look at what parts of the self in the family are reacting to the part of the kid who's now struggling and in trouble? And we want to try to better understand what what's getting lost, like the compassionate mother or the father who might be able to be more helpful, more structuring. Um, and so that, that becomes really important to look at the family and to see, wait, who's gotten lost here? What's you know, who's gotten stuck in certain patterns and just beginning to look at those patterns at least allows for choice uh, in terms of in terms of helping to set what we're trying to do is to help set the road to recovery. And when mm-hmm. patterns like this get stuck, the illness can get stuck. Um, yeah. I mean, it also sounds like sense. the kind of thing that happens with with eating disorders, it's amplified. This is what we see in the room over and over, especially if someone's doing a little bit more of an FBT approach, but that this is mm-hmm. something that's potentially hiding in lots of families or when the eating disorder is removed, then this sort of like completely blows up that there are these interpersonal dynamics happening within the family. And there's dad who has his own nuclear family or coming from his own family and mom who's coming from her family and then they're interacting with each other and then they have a child or they have multiple kids and then they're reacting to that. I mean, this is, it can just get like so, so complex and we haven't even touched on the kid's reaction to, let's say in your example, the father's aggression and the mom's pulling back or sort of like just yeah, pulling back. Yeah. So, and I've heard from kids who have grown up now and they've experienced the FBT potentially still have an eating disorder as an adult. They talk about it, you know, this is sort of their words, whether it's an appropriate word is insignificant, but the sort of re-traumatizing, I use that in quotations of the experience because it wasn't really about them. 
in the end. And so going back full circle to the to the beginning of our conversation in terms of needs and just taking up emotional space or what's right for this child and at times an adult is is sort of lost when we're focusing on a parent or focusing on a symptom. And then, you know, this just, it gets completely out of control. Exactly. I mean, one of the things I, I love working with families and one of the things I like to look at is the patterns of communication. And often I see, I, I often see that the dad is left out of the emotional conversations, the mom and and maybe the and it can be very gendered at times, mm-hmm. but maybe the mom and the kids talk about emotions and mom and the girls. But I think about a particular family that was so moving to me. It was a very successful father and uh, three daughters and mom. And so the three daughters and mom always talked at the dinner table. And a lot of the talk was about food and who was eating what and whether one of the anorexic daughters was was doing well. And when they were in the room, I said, well, what does dad talk about? And they said, no, oh, he, you know, he's sort of quiet. And so I had, and so here was a pattern where dad was on the outside. The daughters were very connected to mom, probably needed dad's help in separating a little bit. And so I said, well, everybody's talking about what happened to them today. Is Could you, I asked one of the daughters to ask dad, dad, what happened to you today? And I'll never forget this. Like a tear welled up in his eye. And he said, I had to fire my best friend today from work. And what I realize in families is often vulnerabilities don't get talked about. Families can get angry, but Mm -hmm. saying what one really feels inside is often neglected. Um, And so I I love Peter Fonagy's approach of when we have a family to have the daughter look at the father and say, what do you think dad's feeling right now? Oh, I think he thinks I'm a, um, I'm a wreck. No, no, that's that's what he's thinking. What do you think he's feeling? Oh, maybe he's feeling helpless because he can't help you right now. Um, I I always think about families. You know, we take our cars in every year for a checkup and inspection. No one takes their family in for an inspection <laughs> each year, you know, unless there's a crisis. So I yeah. always think that there's an opportunity, just like you said, that that the families all get into patterns, um, some some of which work, some of which don't work. And so if the eating disorder is in the family, it's an opportunity to say, okay, wait, what might need to be changed right now? What might need to be inspected? Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, some situations that are perhaps even more complicated than others. Some of this stuff sounds like if the family comes in and they're open to hearing some really difficult feedback or doing things differently, it might be a a matter of holding their hand and just working through a lot of this stuff, which is obviously difficult, but doable. Mm -hmm. And then there are other family dynamics that it seems like the response sometimes is either met with flippancy or anger. And I'm thinking specifically almost in a clinical mindset, some more either personality disorders coming from a parent or a child that makes this work sometimes feel impossible because the reaction is so big and it's really hard for somebody who's feeling that much to be reflective. Um, I don't even know like what my question is with this, but just what are some of your thoughts about that and what to do? I'm glad you're bringing it up because that, you know, one of the things we know is that there's a good deal of trauma in families where somebody develops an eating disorder 
and um, the eating disorder can be a way of blocking out the, the either either there could be trauma from the parents that like in the family I was talking about gets dissociated and shut down and feelings get shut down or there can be trauma going on real time and feelings are really big and really out of control and uh you know I'm glad you're saying this because I, the work the work can be really complicated and really difficult and sometimes, sometimes it involves separating the family members so that you work with each of them slowly in terms of what each of them needs to do to regulate their feelings. Um, sometimes it's, you know, I've, I've had situations where feelings have been really big, parents yelling at each other, and the kid who was bulimic and in there because of the eating disorder literally run out of the room and my having to go down the hall and, and get her to come back in and to sit and quiet down and and to help the parents quiet down so that they could hear the daughter and she could come back in. But I, I you know, you're asking a really good question in terms of what to do. I think, I think trying to understand the helplessness and the feelings behind the big feelings, you know, like, like where people feel so powerless, because I think that's where sometimes people get so angry or so frustrated and, um, and trying to put some words to that and give them some sense of one step forward that they could do. Um, I had a, a mom who had been beaten as a child. I mean, she had literally been beaten. And when she found out that her daughter was throwing up, then her daughter was was a teen. Um, she would come into her room in the middle of the night, like, "How could you do this to us? How could, you know?" And and almost repeated the kind of she would do a verbal assault as opposed to her being beaten. That the feelings were just too big for her, and it really took working with the mom directly, separate from the daughter, to to, to help her feel like she was being heard. That, um, that there was a treatment plan, that there were possibilities of help, um, but that that her fear was being heard. So I don't know if that helps yeah. at all. They just no, it definitely does. But then I'm thinking about how this stuff is sort of translated. And say, for example, the daughter in an example like this, where mom's feelings are so big. And so what are the messages that this daughter is getting, say from mom or from both of the parents, about how to respond? And then we have in front of us either a family with one child who's either parentified or has another role. And that's a product of all yeah. of this communication happening over years. So, yeah. you know, we don't just see a parent in their role or a child in their role. We see everybody in their role and then we see how the dynamics come together. And yeah. It, well, say. you know, you know, it's funny what I see a lot in situations like this is the kids end up not having a sense at all about who they are, what they want. Um, I have so many situations where mom is is called in every day with a photo. Is this okay for me to wear? We're talking about adult kids, and or should I go out with this boy? Or or and of course they don't know what they want to eat. Um, that 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 when when kids are in a situation where the family where the parents have big feelings and big uh, the kids need to learn to have radar to the parents of what what do the parents need and that gets that so so a lot of the work really is having so hilda hilda brooke talked about this a lot early on it, it the, the implication was if someone was eating disordered 
that they that they were conflicted about their sexual or aggressive needs. And Brooke came in and said, I don't think they're conflicted. I don't think they have any sense of anything to be conflicted <laughs> about. Um, and she said, we need to build a toolbox to help them know what they feel, what they want. And this is where I find sometimes the work with nutritionists is so helpful with someone who comes in who has disordered eating because knowing what you want to eat is a very primitive beginning sense of what you want. And so sometimes starting with just what someone wants to eat for lunch, separate from what they should or what they can, becomes a way of getting to know who they are separate from the outside world. And if someone has radar to to the parents, they're going to have radar for what the culture wants or what the scale wants. So they're always Mm. looking outward for who they, whom they should be. And this, you know, this gets translated into relationships where they look to the other person to see whom they should be. If they're okay, gets translated to sex in terms of someone not knowing their own body, thinking about what someone else needs. So in families like this, it, what I what I'm paying attention to is is does the child have any sense at all of what they feel, what they want, and has the development of an eating disorder been the only way that in a funny way sometimes the only thing that they do that is theirs? Like I've mm-hmm. worked sometimes whether it's someone who's binging, like okay, I got Genghis Khan is out, I can do whatever I want, or whether it's an anorexic who's like this is the one thing I can control. Yeah. Um, just a follow-up question. I'm curious if you have any ideas about what to do in this sort of situation where a person is so removed from what they want because it's not even part of how they think that even trying to figure out, do I want food right now or what kind of food do I want right now is completely foreign. So in that case, if we don't even have like the physical food and hunger to rely on, yeah, where does a person like that start? Oh my God, I have a couple situations like that. I mean, I like to work with a nutritionist, um, dietitian in that regard, where we set up that, you know, a structure of three meals a day, two snacks. And we literally start with what, what kind of taste do you want right now? Do you want salty? Do you want sweet? What kind of, um, sensation or texture do you want? Because I, it really, it really means growing someone's sense of themselves. It's, it's really mm-hmm. stunning. I always compare it to babies and I'll say, listen, babies know exactly when they want to eat, you know, and, um, <laughs> they, you know, let you know. They, they, they let you know, You're gonna know soon, <laughs> you know, and we also start with something really basic, which is, do you know when you have to pee? Mm. Because you know, are you somebody that just holds it and doesn't even pay attention to when you pee? And, uh, uh, you know, that is a start to knowing somatically what you feel. So we start with the most primitive of body sensations and the most primitive of tastes, but that I have seen that where someone is so out of touch with themselves that they don't even know what they want to eat. Mm -hmm. I like that's a really good starting point. So uh, there's obviously so much more about this and and I'm hoping that we can continue having this conversation, but just sort of for the sake of time, I wanted to wrap yeah. this up in a way of, okay, a little bit more of what do we do about it? Sort of leaving with a little bit more of a tangible and not, okay, here's the problem. Bye. Um, so yeah. say we're talking about uh, mostly a family and we're with these mm-hmm. complicated dynamics. How do we start breaking some of these patterns? 
and assuming that they're going for family counseling and people are in therapy and have a dietitian and all that, where would you even say to start? Okay, I'll, I'll talk about two different situations. If someone's anorexic, um, if the, if a family based treatment hasn't worked for them or that's not their option, what I would what I would be doing was with the team setting up uh, a, that the person has to gain probably a pound a week, and that can go up and down, but there has to be a, a, tra- a trajectory upward. And what I do is I get the parents back in the authoritative role of not. Because when, when someone is anorexic, the person is sort of in control of the house and, and mm-hmm. parents are, are frantic. So I get the parents back in the position of authority and saying, okay, your kid looks like she's a straight A student and that she's doing great and she just has this disorder. How do you pay attention to the part of her that's in trouble that doesn't have a voice? And if she, and as I'm saying she, I really, really err on the side here because um, eating disorders are hitting all sorts of populations, uh, trans population guys. So um, forgive me for having years where, where <laughs> I got used to thinking it was the white, um, you know, the white girl uh, gendered. In any case, um, you want you want the parents to be very clear about that if the pound a week can't happen, this is what is going to happen next. Like I say, sports may be eliminated. We had a, a kid that was supposed to go to Africa for a semester and she was really medically unstable. Parents had already put down a lot of money for that trip, but the message was that they had to say that if she couldn't gain the weight, she couldn't go on that trip. And it, as I said before, it can go uh, to saying that there might be the need for a higher level of care. In the face of that, you're getting the parents out of the emotional tangle. Like here's something very concrete that's going to happen. And now we can pay attention to the the fact that you're hurting. Like if you don't do this, there's part of you that's hurting. You're not being, you're not being um, stubborn or frustrating. Um, And how do we allow some compassion and, and talking about our own feelings? So as opposed to being frustrated, how do you talk about being helpless? Like it puts me in a position where I feel scared. Um, if, if someone, um, so with, with anorexia, there's a very clear process of what happens in the family in terms of weight and monitoring with bulimia and binging. It's a whole other, other ball game because the more we find, the more that the parents are trying to control weight, the more problematic it becomes. And so we try to open up communicate. We try to get a team in place so that the person who's struggling has a trajectory of goals that they're working on. But with the parents, it's often there trying to get them out of the focus on food and more on the focus on what's hurting. How do they talk to someone about who that person really is at that point? And because often what you see is the focus really is on you're eating that or you sure you want a second helping as opposed to wondering who that person is at at that point. So it sounds like, this, yeah, it, yeah. It, but it sounds like in terms of there's definitely specifics that happen in the beginning, but with all cases, what we want to do is bring the conversation to what's going on underneath. What are you feeling? What's the hurt behind it? How can we talk about it? Because here is sort of the key in my mind is identifying what's going on, identifying emotions, but also the pattern. What would you say is is the significance in the identification? Like what happens when, okay, so now we know what it is. Now, what can we do with it? You, you know, you're summing it up so well. Uh, I think 
knowing allows for choice. So, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, as a mom, I know that we're, you know, when my kids were in trouble, I would try to come in and fix it. And that was probably the worst thing I could do. They would get so frustrated <laughs> because they just wanted me to know that I, that they were hurting. And it took me a long time to say, I, I don't have to do anything. I can just listen, even though I know if they did this one thing, everything would be better, but that they didn't. So when I re- began to realize and my, and ki- this is one thing I want to tell parents, listen to your kids. They know you better than anyone. It was my kids who taught me that trying to fix it isn't going to help. And so it gave me the choice to catch my breath, to not go into their room, to, to know, let them know that I was there, but to not try to give advice at times where I thought the advice could be helpful. So I think that Knowing patterns, knowing what's going on inside gives you choice about how you're going to act. If you know your yeah. kid's hurting, you're going, to, you're going to act in a very different way than if you think she's just being frustrating. Mm-hmm. And that also provides a certain level of freedom because even if you take the entire first part of our conversation, which is a bit more theoretical and trying to understand all the puzzle pieces and and the cause of an eating disorder. I mean, we always talk about this, like what's the cause? What's the, what the relational patterns that are going on here that it's not so important to identify the cause or how the cause has developed. Maybe it's interesting, but that's not going to, to end all. And it's not going to be the key. It's more about what's happening today, the identification of it, and ultimately what choice that provides. So if sure, if you want to figure out what the quote cause is, then fine. But I do think that this sort of provides a little bit of freedom to some people if they're not interested in that. So well said. And it makes me think of Ed Levinson, who's a mentor of mine, who focused on on the here and now in a way of what's going on around here was his famous, one of, one of his mm. many famous quotes. <laughs> You know, for example, I'm thinking of a family where when the parents started to get a little aggressive with each other and the, the tone would raise, I'd watch the daughter in the corner measuring her wrist and putting her hands around to see this is how she would measure whether she was skinny enough. And so what was going on around there, I had to stop and say, what's going on around here? Why are you body checking right now? And she was body checking because she was anxious about her parents and worried that they were going to have a divorce. Or, But meanwhile, you're right. I, did her parents being angry cause the eating disorder? I don't know, because they might not have even been that angry and anxious before she had the eating disorder. You know, mm-hmm. families go into crisis when someone is uh, in trouble. Yeah. Um, but noting that pattern and noting with the parents that when they got aggressive with each other, that the, their daughter was going to have a reaction, it allowed them to have more choice as to how they spoke to each other. Yeah, which is ultimately what we're looking for. So, right. yeah, yeah. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation. Of course, like I said, plenty more to talk about. Um, but thank you so much for joining us and for providing all this wisdom. I I loved it. Thank you. You are such a great interviewer. Thank you. He, he <laughs> Thank guided you. the way. So, but before um, so before I let you go, if somebody wants to learn a little bit more about you or about your work, where can they find you? Um, I'm at my website is Judith at drjudithbrisman.com, D R J U D I T H Brisman.com. 
Um, and take a look at Surviving an Eating Disorder. It, it's in the fourth edition. It's on Amazon. And it will spell out in a lot more detail a lot of the things I was talking about today. Yeah. And like I said, I'll link to all of that so that people don't have to like go, oh, I got one letter off. And they can go in oh, the right. show notes and uh, click on it. So thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate thank you, it. Raquel. I appreciate it too. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.